This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best author interviews directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Here's one of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio Archives. We hope you enjoy it, and check our site on September 14th for our brand new show, PW Insider. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Scott Stossel on the line. He's the author of My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search for Peace of Mind. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your book. What gave you the idea to write about anxiety, and where did that idea take you? Well, I've always been interested in um, psychology and intellectual history going back years and years, so it's... Um, that, that's sort of the, the, the general context in which the idea occurred to me. But the specific one was I've also, uh, as I recount in the book, had lifelong um, struggles with anxiety myself. And specifically what prompted it, ironically enough, was about 10 years ago, or actually exactly 10 years ago, uh, I published my first book. And in the run-up to the launch of the book, there was going to be kind of a modest book tour that involved some uh, public TV appearances and big lectures and uh, major events, and I got acutely, acutely anxious about the public speaking component um, of this, which has always been uh, kind of an abiding anxiety of mine. But uh, it, my my fear was such that I, you know, I was already in psychotherapy, was already being medicated. But I thought I've got to come up with something, so I actually called uh, the Boston University Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders um, to see if I could get set up with a course of sort of emergency, what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what they specialize in, try to, to try to control my um, performance anxiety. And as I was sort of in the process of trying to sign up, I, I think I actually told them, you know, this is something I might think about writing about. And I think it was sort of a half-baked idea at the time. Partly I was just trying to get in more quickly so that they could treat me, you know, in time. I think they said there was a six-week waiting period. And I didn't have six weeks. But actually that was the moment at which the idea sort of caught hold. And I realized, you know, this is something that was very, very interesting to me. And so I spent, you know, much of the next, uh, you know, many years sort of researching and then, and then eventually uh, reporting and writing the book. And of course the irony is, you know, I was prompted, you know, by my uh, you know, anxiety over a book tour to write a book a- about anxiety, which I have succeeded in doing with, for which I'm now rewarded with another book tour. <laughs> <laughs> and and looks what looks to be lots more public appearances. Yeah, uh, so we'll, we'll 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 see how it goes. Well, well, tell us what did you learn about anxiety that that surprised you besides your own. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, there's so much. I mean, uh, and I cover a lot of ground. Everything from the. Um, sort of cutting-edge scientific discoveries to uh, how different historical eras have thought about it. But a couple of things that were most interesting to me, I mean, one is historical, and it's just, uh, you, you read back through the literature of a lot of 
thinkers and writers, including, you know, in particular thinkers and writers about anxiety, including people like Charles Darwin and Sigmund Freud and William James, you know, they themselves uh, often suffered from acute anxiety, which was partly what motivated them to try to you know, develop their new theories of mind and to do their research on, on their, their their different areas. And so what I found, and again and again, reading back through, you know, going back literally millennia, is that you'll find descriptions, you know, from the 4th century B.C. or the 2nd century B.C. or, you know, the, the 18th century British intellectuals talking about, you know, what would today be clearly diagnosable as a, you know, generalized anxiety disorder or a panic attack or social phobia. So it was sort of consoling and, and reassuring to see that this is something that is kind of endemic to the human condition and that, you know, plenty of people far greater than I have, have, have suffered with it, too. And I found that kind of a source of not only great interest and, and consolation. Um, on the you know, forward-looking part of it, a lot of the, the cutting-edge science um, and neuroscience and kind of molecular genetics, um, anxiety is one of these areas where, for various reasons, you know, they're making great leaps and bounds. I mean, there's still tons of it is not understood. But in sort of starting to discover what the actual underlying, you know, neurophysiological, neurochemical mechanisms of different, you know, of anxiety, but also other emotions. What are the brain structures associated with um, different levels of anxiety? What does mindfulness meditation do to, uh, you know, your amygdala, which is kind of the part of your brain that's the seat of the fear response, and what does it do to the neocortex? So it was just sort of fascinating to me, you know, because they're making such leaps and bounds uh, of, of, of progress with you know, fMRI technology where you can actually look at your brain in a scanner and see what it looks like when it's experiencing different emotions. Um, suddenly we're, we're you know, understanding the relationship between brain and mind a lot more. Um, so all, all that was very, very interesting to me, although it's also clear, you know, as, as great as our expansion and understanding is, you know, we, we still are kind of groping around in the dark as to really understand, you know, how does the mind, you know, create a self or an emotion or a, a, a fearful thought. Well, you know, anxiety did not exist as a diagnosis a half century ago, even in our own lifetime, uh, years of mine say, that um, what, what is its history? Well, so going back I mean, to, to your point there, the you know anxiety disorders, which have been around since the third edition of uh, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, sort of the Bible of the psychiatric and you know, um, uh, psychotherapy industry, there, there was no such thing as an anxiety disorder before 1980. Mm -hmm. um, basically, that was the third edition, and, and that edition there had been a fight in the years leading up to that. The previous edition, the second edition, had come out in 1968 and had been completely dominated by Freudian psychoanalytic theory. And so you had all kinds of things like neuroses and um, psychoneuroses, but not, nothing that was anxiety per se. There was a battle fought between the biological psychiatrists and the Freudians during that period, and, and basically the biological psychiatrists won, and they tried to come up with when they came up with the disease categories in the DSM-3, they tried to be much more symptom-based and less about, you know, what's the cause of it? Was it, you know, that you have an edible complex and you want to have sex with your mother? Um, and so that that's the point at which the anxiety disorders per se uh, came into existence. And then, you know, since then we've sort of studied them as, as such. But, I mean, a lot of these disease, you know, for instance, panic disorder was first invented um, I mean, literally invented uh, with the 1980 publication of, of the DSM. And it's interesting because, you know, everyone today, you know, plenty of people, millions of Americans are, are diagnosed with panic disorder. Everybody knows what a panic attack is, even if they haven't experienced one, because it's part of the lingua franca, you know, Tony Soprano had them. 
Right. Um, and yet you go back to uh, you know, the 1960s and 70s, and there, there, there was just no such thing. No one talked about them. It used to be known as anxiety neurosis. And basically what happened was in the early 1960s, there was research on a drug by called imipramine, which is one of the early tricyclic uh, antidepressants. And there was a doctor named Dr. Donald Klein who sort of experimenting, giving this drug kind of willy-nilly to a whole bunch of his patients. And what he found was that it didn't cure their kind of chronic worry, and it didn't cure things like psychosis, schizophrenia, but it did uh, cause them to stop having these paroxysmal uh, anxiety attacks. So he realized that, you know, we, ever since Freud, everyone had thought about anxiety sort of on a spectrum and that, you know, acute anxiety leads to schizophrenia and psychosis and milder anxiety is neurosis. And he realized, no, here's something that's different in kind. This is panic anxiety. And so that, he, he achieved what's known as the first pharmacological dissection. That is to say, he came, you know, he, he, he there was a drug, he used the drug, and he worked backwards from that to invent something called panic disorder. And that's not to say that it didn't exist in nature, that people weren't um, experiencing these things. As I say, you know, in the second century AD, you have, or the fourth century, you have Hippocrates describing people having what are evidently panic attacks, but there was no no word for it. Um, and, and then going back a little bit further through the century, I mean, Freud talked a lot about anxiety as kind of an underlying cause of a lot of other kinds of psychopathologies, but he changed his mind multiple times over his career about what it was, what caused it, was it a biological problem, was it a repressed sexual impulses thing, was it sort of the atrophied remnants of some kind of evolutionary fight or flight response. That he was closest to being accurate on, on, on that theory, by the way. But really, aside from Freud, until you get to the mid-century, um, there's very little literature on anxiety per se. Um, um, you know, it really wasn't until the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then 80s, you have the benzodiazepines, anti-anxiety medication coming online, that anxiety really became, um, you know, an object of, of, of study. And, you know, going back way back, the, you know, things like anxiety and depression tend to get grouped lumps together under umbrellas like melancholia or hysteria or the vapors, things like that. And when you were researching the anxiety of historical figures, you mentioned Charles Darwin. Um, how, how did you go about doing that? And if, since they weren't writing about it using the terminology that we use today? Well, they do. They, and they will occasionally use the term. I, mean, I, there's a, I have a epigraph in the book where, you know, Emma Darwin, his wife, is writing to her friend, and she says, you know, Charles is much given to anxiety, as you know. Um, I mean, a lot of it I came across sort of haphazardly. I basically started reading through, um, I mean, a great sort of starting secondary source for me was one of the first modern books written about anxiety was a book published in 1950 called The Meaning of Anxiety by Rollo May, who was a kind of an existential psychotherapist. And he had read through kind of the intellectual history of, um, you know, everything up to that point, which included a lot of the writings by existential enlightened philosophers. So I sort of followed that trail back into history, and then um, I basically was just reading everything I could get my hands on and sort of following the trail, and that was both, you know, going back and reading um, works from the, you know, say, 1800s by, you know, British physicians talking about, there's a great book uh, called The English Ma uh, Malady by a book named, by a physician named George Cheney, who himself suffered from it, and he talked about how, how epidemic, uh, uh, you know, what he called, um, 
uh, the English disease was back then by which you really meant sort of stress and anxiety. Um, and then I would, you know, obviously there's new papers being published all the time in the scientific literature, so I would have sort of a Google alerts and subscribe to various newsletters that would be serving this all up to me. So it was kind of haphazard, but it was one of those things where, you know, I probably, I, I, I read around enough that after a while I would start coming across the same, you know, like, oh, I, I would be discovering things that I already knew, and that's always that point, you know, when you're researching a book or, a, or an article where, okay, I'm, you're starting to feel like maybe you have a handle on the material because you're covering your tracks again. And you talk about your own anxiety, too. There's a big autobiographical component to the book, um, as you mentioned earlier. So how was your anxiety during the writing of the book? Did, did it sort of feed on itself? Did writing about this make it better? Did it trigger you? Yes, to all of the above. <laughs> um, uh, there were... Um, when the writing, I mean, you know, you guys are writers too, so you know how when when the writing is going well and you're feeling good about it, and you know, there's nothing more sort of soul satisfying than that. When it's going poorly, um, and you are sort of have written yourself into a corner and you don't know how to get out, there's no worse feeling. And I think that was all compounded because of the subject I was writing about, and it was wrapped up with um, you know complicated ambivalent emotions about whether even to you know, in publishing this and sort of coming out is struggling with these anxiety issues. Um, I mean, for me, the way, you know, some people have asked me, like, well, how did you, um, you know, how were you able to get yourself to do that? And partly it was because when you're sitting alone in your room writing, you know, half the time, you, you sort of have an imagined audience in mind, but I was so in doubt that this book would ever get published because I was late and it was taking me forever that I could sort of write it. It just, it just it was sort of unimaginable to me that, um, these things that I was writing in, you know, my little attic were actually going to be read by the world at large. And I think if I had gotten fixated on that, I would never have finished it. I just sort of focused on, okay, I got to finish this. And now that it's you know coming out, I actually have to reckon with the fact that, you know, I say all these um, things about my personal struggles with anxiety, including some, you know, personal, uh, personally embarrassing and I hope, you know, humorous episodes, but that, um, you know, I'm a little ambivalent about exposing, but um, I decided, you know, um, I'm going all in. Might as well put it all in there. Sure. And did writing this book offer you any kind of peace of mind, say, in reference to your subtitle? Yeah. I mean, like I said, there were moments when, well, the, 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 those moments of identification and recognition when I would, um, you know, again and again, I would realize, you know, there are millions and millions of people today who who suffer from this. And there are millions of, you know, great minds from back through history who, who wrestled with similar things. And I found that to be consoling and to provide some some peace of mind. Um, the act of simply finishing, the, you know, there, there were points at which, you know, I'd embarked in this big book on anxiety and where I talk about, you know, sort of my self-doubt. And, um, you know, I was on the verge of not being able to finish it. And I thought, well, this will be, you know, confirmation of my sort of anxious ineptitude. So, so merely, you know, fit, completing the book was a great act of um, self-efficacy. And obviously with all books, there are things that I wish I'd done better slightly differently or had more time to bake more fully but you know finishing it um did, did uh you know provide some measure of, of of pleasure and and relief from anxiety um but uh jury's still out on whether you know overall this has been an anxiety reducing or producing experience and anxiety and fear can certainly be paralyzing but there are also books out there like the gift of fear that talk about the beneficial aspects um, have you ever experienced something like that absolutely no and i talk uh you know at some length in the book about that i mean it, it, it just a couple 
related thoughts, I guess. I mean, one is there's this famous study uh, from 1908 by a couple of Harvard psychologists named Yerkes and Dodson, who basically plotted, you know, a bell curve, and um, it's, it's sort of the Goldilocks theory of anxiety, and that if you're, so if you picture along the uh, horizontal axis is your level of anxiety, so if you're far out along the right, you're super, super anxious, and if you're on the left, you're not anxious enough. And then if you plot quality of performance, effectiveness of performance on the vertical axis. So if you're too far out on the right side where you're super anxious, your performance is impaired because you're too anxious to function properly. But if you're too far on the left, on the on the non-anxious side, you'll also perform poorly. It's the, the peak of the kind of bell curve is a moderate level of anxiety because basically if you're not, if your adrenaline's not pumping, if you're not engaged, you won't perform as well. So some some level of anxiety is, is adaptive and, and productive and that all Always goes with the you know provides with it as long as it's not you know extreme anxiety. Anxiety is good. Anxiety is an evolutionarily adaptive trait that keeps the species alive. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if we weren't anxious, we all would have you know fallen off cliffs or done right. stupid stupid things. And, and you know the other thing is I, I talk uh, in the book about you know there are it may be that anxiety is sort of the 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 bad parts of anxiety are the flip side of what some of the good traits that may come with it. Um, Certain uh, you know neurogeneticists talk about there's there's a, a warrior warrior gene, um, and if you're equipped with the warrior gene, um, you know you're you thrive under pressure when you're under attack. You're at war. You're a quarterback. You know with thousands of pounds of linebackers bearing down on you, and you'll you'll function optimally in that situation. Someone who's very nervous might not. Except the warriors are actually will function optimally in situations where they're not. You know, actively under threat, but they're very good at avoiding um, bad consequences because they are very effective at sort of scanning the horizon, whether that's literally the physical horizon or just the future. I mean, the best lawyers, you know, some therapists would tell me, are you know suffer from anxiety because they're very good at worrying about every conceivable eventual bad outcome and guarding against those. Um, and it, you know, there's evidence too that particularly for people who have uh, various forms of social anxiety. It's the same thing that makes you socially anxious is tied into equipment um, that gives you very sensitive social antennae, and those antennae, um, you know, can be very good at helping people to diffuse conflict, how to read situations, even how to how to manage people. And there's there's one set of studies that I was you know quite drawn to, being an anxious person myself. Um, Stephen Swomey, who has done a lot of research with um, rhesus monkeys um, over many years, basically they can you know breed different strains of monkeys, some who are super anxious and some who are non-anxious. And if you take the super anxious monkeys, you know, they had anxious parents and those anxious genes got passed on to them. And then you take those monkeys and give them to non-anxious parents. They grow up to be much less anxious than their genetic siblings. And in fact, many of them grow up to become kind of like alpha males of the troop and leaders. And it's sort of like you know, having being equipped with the right amount of you know an anxious temperament, but with a calm, nurturing mother you know, can create an optimal outcome. You know, the suboptimal outcome is if you, you're born to an anxious mother who behaves anxiously and then you grow up to be kind of an anxious wreck. <laughs> now, your your previous book, Sarge, The Life and Times of Sergeant Shriver, about the founder of the Peace Corps and the Special Olympics, came out, as you said, 10 years ago, 2004. And and, and the one that kind of started uh, the, the research on this book, this book, you know, that book must have been a very different one to write than this one. Yeah, I mean, and that, that, it was, it was, in a lot of ways... Easier. I mean, there are aspects of it that were harder, um, but with a biography, um, you always, you know, not that I wouldn't get stuck in a chapter and figure out what to do, you know, I did, you know, plenty of self-revising, but 
if ever I sort of didn't know um, what I should be writing next, you just it, it's a chronological biography. What happened the next day? What happened the next month? What happened the next year? And obviously, you have to be still thinking about shifts in tone, and you're dealing with you know multiple parallel um, storylines, and you have to figure out how to weave those through. But fundamentally, the the, the the basic narrative momentum of the book was was clear. Whereas with this new one, um, you know, since it's such a mixture of uh, memoir and science and history, and you know, I had a very hard time figuring out. It ended up, I ended up putting much more of myself into the book than I intended. And it's interesting. You know, some people sort of are reading it more as a memoir. Obviously, there's a lot of memoirish material in there, but that I, I sort of tried to use myself as the kind of a unifying strand that ties all these disparate a- aspects of anxiety that I explore together in the book. And so it was much more of a, you know, having to figure out what, you know, it had to kind of create its own momentum um, and, and ideas had to build on other ideas. Whereas writing a biography is just, you know, what happened in 1964, what happened in 1965. Um, and, and, you know, one additional challenge with that book was I was dealing with and, you know, a, a then still living person who had a very powerful, still living family who had very definite views about, you know, what should and should not be said. So that that was an anxiety producing episode toward the end stages of that book that I did not have to deal with in this book. Although actually, now that I think about it, I did. The difference in this case was that it was my own family um, that was objecting to, uh, you know, various portrayals of, um, you know, themselves as kind of secondary characters in, in the memoirs sections. <laughs> that's always tough, the secondary characters. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's the, yeah. And, and, and I mean, again, I understand that, the, the, so there was some hairy moments um, with, you know, my mother, father, sister, um, uh, where, you know, and I did make some changes at their, their behest. Um, uh, you know, I got lots of, my mother is a warrior. If I, I clearly got, you know, the, my anxious temperament from the maternal side of the family. And, you know, there was some days when I would get 37 voicemail messages with her, um, you know, about this one thing on page 337. Um, <laughs> you, and she's also a stickler for accuracy. And she'll say, like, you went to nursery school in the afternoons, not in the morning. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so, um, Family is very anxiety-provoking for a lot of people. So uh, before we wind this up, I was wondering, you know, most folks are just coming off of family time with the holidays and uh, a lot of anxiety there. Do you have any advice, um, either either from your research or from your personal experience, for kind of setting that anxiety aside and getting back to daily life? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this this time of year is can be family gatherings can be incredibly anxiety-provoking. I mean, you know, the the what what uh, you can get. A dozen different people telling you a dozen different things, but you know, make sure um, to carve out time for yourself. Uh, you know, a lot of people recommend. I, you know, I'm not a practiced meditator myself, but if you take time out a couple times a day to um, you know just do deep breathing and think relaxing thoughts, exercise, exercise, exercise. You know, this in in my own life and in all of the scientific literature and in the historical literature going back. 500 years, um, regular exercise, you know, just does wonders not only for your physical health, but for your mental health. You know, that's, that, that's true of, de- of, of depression um, as well. And, you know, try to cultivate an option. I mean, it's easier said than done, but, you know, try to, um, you know, express gratitude for the things that you are happy about and, you know, cultivate an optimistic attitude. You know, the, 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 there's a trait that psychiatrists and psychologists and people in the mental health field now talk about a lot called resilience. And, um, you know, that resilience is sort of the, the personality trait that makes you most resistant to 
breaking down under stress into depression and anxiety and that are most able to make you recover for it. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence that resilience is kind of woven into the genes. You're kind of hardwired to be resilient or not. But it's definitely something that you can learn um, and can, practice, you know, train yourself to be better at. So um, be resilient is, is the two-word answer. It sounds like a good one. Well, we've been talking with Scott Stossel. You'll be able to find his book, My Age of Anxiety, in stores on January 7th. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. And don't forget, PW Insider launches on September 14th. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 